Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 903. To begin our final show of the year, Jay Jaffe and Dan Zimborski remember the late Phil Necro, as well as the six other Hall of Famers that we lost this year. Necro was the king of the knuckleballers, pitching 24 seasons and racking up over 300 wins. While he is best known for his time with the Braves, some started watching baseball late in his lengthy career. It's funny with Necro because he's one of a list of Hall of Famers some unfortunately will touch on today, that because of my age, being born in 1978, I remember them with the wrong team. Right. <laughs> yeah, no one has a visual image of, you know, Joe Morgan with the A's, except for me. <laughs> After that, David Lorla is joined by Derek Gold of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to discuss the Cardinals, as well as his own Hall of Fame voting. Derek has a lot of good things to say about things like Scott Rowland and having his own baseball card made, but he has less good things to say about the current Cardinals bats. I mean, if they just had an average offense, they would be a remarkable team because of how good their pitching has been. They have left wins, and they might even have left a pennant on the table in the past two years because of their lack of offense. We want to say thanks for listening to Fangraphs Audio this year. It is because of the help of you, our supporters, that we can continue to offer everything we do at Fangraphs.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. Of the thousands of pitchers who have reached the majors, fewer than a hundred mastered the knuckleball, that maddeningly erratic, spin-free butterfly, well enough to rely upon it as their primary pitch. None of them succeeded to the extent that Phil Necro did. Necro, nicknamed Nuxy, learned the pitch from his father, a coal miner and semi-professional hurler, at the age of eight. And while he didn't establish himself as a big league starter for another 20 years, he carved out a 24-year career in the majors, winning 318 games, striking out 3,342 batters, starting more games than all but four starting pitchers, and earning a spot in the Hall of Fame. Alas, in the final days of 2020, Necro joined an all-too-inclusive subset of Hall of Famers, passing away on Saturday at the age of 81 after a long bout with cancer. He's the seventh Hall of Fame player to die this year, after Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, Whitey Ford, and Joe Morgan. That's a record, either surpassing the total from 1972 or tying it, depending upon whether one counts the posthumous induction of Roberto Clemente via a special election in 1973. Negro began his career in 1964 and spent his first 20 years with the Milwaukee and Atlanta Braves before moving on to the Yankees, Indians, and Blue Jays, and then making a one-start cameo with the Braves, who had denied him a proper send-off at the end of 1983, on September 27, 1987. A five-time All-Star and five-time Gold Glove winner, he's among the best pitchers never to win a Cy Young, but he started more games, 716, than all but Young, Nolan Ryan, Don Sutton, and Greg Maddox, taking more turns than any starter who never pitched in a World Series. He's one of ten pitchers to attain the dual milestones of 300 wins and 3,000 strikeouts, six of them cohorts from what I call that 70s group, and ranks 16th overall on the all-time list for wins and 11th in strikeouts. He's also 11th in the baseball reference version of wins above replacement, 5th in losses, 4th in innings, hits allowed, and home runs allowed, 3rd in walks, and 2nd in earned runs allowed behind only Cy Young. With his death, three of the top 15 pitchers in Jaws have died this year. Nico ranked 15th, 1 spot below Gibson, and 7 below Tom Seaver. He and his brother Joe, who was born in 1944 and spent 22 years in the majors with 8 teams, combined for more wins, 539, than, than any brotherly combination. With me now to talk about Necro and these other guys who've passed away this year is Dan Zimborski. Hi, Dan. 
Hey, Jay, how's it going? Ending the year on a somber note, I suppose. I feel that of the of these guys I've just listed, I probably saw Necro maybe about as much as I did Seaver or Morgan. He certainly stuck around the game a little bit longer, and I think I had the most affection for him of those three. So this one, this one certainly hurts a little bit, and all the more so when you realize that uh, uh, the knuckleball, as special as it is, is such a dying breed in the major leagues. We're just never going to see another Phil Necro. No, and the way it, his career path was just so interesting, and it's it's always fun for a a professional athlete to have a tool, the knuckleball, of course, that makes them excellent at age forty. Which, as someone who has passed age forty, <laughs> I, I appreciate that more than I did twenty years ago. I, I liked R. A. Dickey, I liked Tim Wakefield, but you know they did not match the the knuckleball power of Phil Necro. Yeah, it's it's funny when I was when I was do, uh, working on working on this tribute, which went up uh, today, Wednesday at Fangraphs, looking back and seeing pictures of Phil Necro when he had dark hair. I don't remember Phil Necro with anything but kind of gray or white hair, um, because by the time I started watching baseball in the late seventies, and he was he was already pushing forty, and he already had this 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 shock of hair that that, that stood out. He was an old man. He was only born exactly three years before my mother, and yet he seemed like 20 years older. So it's kind of kind of jarring to look back and see him as a young man. But yes, he pitched in the majors until he was until he was half past his 48th birthday and having uh, uh, very recently passed the 48 mark and, and now 51. I can relate. It's got to be it's got to be incredibly difficult to maintain any kind of athletic prowess. And, you know, he was throwing 200 innings a year almost up to the end. It's funny with Negro because he's one of a list of Hall of Famers, some unfortunately we'll touch on today, that because of my age, being born in 1978, I remember them with the wrong team. Right. <laughs> yeah, no one has a visual image of, you know, Joe Morgan with the A's, except for me. <laughs> I mean, I actually remember Tom Seaver and, uh, with the White Sox. It's, it's kind of weird. Well, the White Sox, the, the, with the White Sox, that was so it was so distinctive because they had those very weird ultra modern uniforms, and and you know it's like him and and Greg Luzinski in those very unfamiliar looking Sox uniforms really stand out for me. You know, almost as much as envisioning Seaver in in the Mets uh, pinstripes or or, or the Reds uh, pullovers. I wonder if uh, some of our mental picture of of uh, Negro is that since a lot of his fame was tied up not just with the knuckleball but for being old that you and that it's hard to remember a person as young when they're famous for being old like who remembers young george burns right yeah that's a that's a that's actually well i mean yes uh, unfortunately all those people have you know have have (laughs) have died out but you're right it gets to interesting point necro's the best stretch of his career was was ages 35 to 41 when he put up something like 65 war, I mean, that's more than, you know, a lot of players who get, who are in the hall of, a lot of pitchers who are in the hall of fame. I mean, he's had, he had that much. Don Sutton had 66.7 war in his career, for example. Roy Halladay, 64. You know, it's it, like Negro did that from 35 to 41. And, and he had some seasons, three seasons in there in a row from 1977 to 79, where he threw uh, a total of a thousand innings uh, with a minimum of 330 or something like that in those three seasons. He was just, you know, he was so ultra durable and he's um, head and shoulders among the rest of the the rest of the baseball world in terms of overall value after age 35. I put a table into my tribute. He had 65.5 war from age 35 onward. 
Randy Johnson, 60, Cy Young, 58, and then the next guy is 46.6. So it just drops off considerably there, but that's quite a quite a testament to his staying power. And as you say, I mean, there there aren't any, you know, true knuckleballers to the same degree that, that we had back then. I mean, because you had the choice between you had Necro and you had you know, Charlie Huff and Wilbur Wood. You had some choices there. Yeah, and and then you had and then you had a Negro um, passing the baton to Tom Candiotti with those with those those Indians. Candyman. Yeah, you know uh, Candiotti, and then uh, you know we saw we saw Wakefield emerge. Charlie Huff stuck around forever, you know. And then it, it's it's been lean years other than R. A. Dickey. And I think in twenty twenty, if I'm not mistaken, we didn't have a single a single pitcher throw a knuckleball if there's any if there's any knuckleballs thrown in 2020 it was probably by position players who were just goofing, <laughs> goofing around i'd have to i'd have to check that here with with our with our stats tools but i believe that's probably correct you, you talk about position players uh fooling around but one of my theories uh it hasn't really happened but i kind of had this feeling you know based on the trajectory of some of these knuckleballers is that any pitcher who's in their 30s and things aren't working out should at least try to develop a knuckleball. Just try. I mean, maybe it probably won't work, but try. I know um, Phil Necro's son, Lance, who who was a hitter, right. Phil tried to teach his son to throw a knuckleball, to you know, give him a second second lease on baseball life, so to speak. Lance was actually Joe's, Joe Necro's son. Oh, Joe Necro's son. So, yeah, Phil, Phil's nephew. But yes, he gave it a, a one-year shot. In the minors and low minors, and and uh, found it was it was uh, just not as easy as it looked. Not not to take anything away from the effort. Certainly, uh, you know, when the knuckleball is the family business, you you deserve you deserve at least a year uh, <laughs> to see it, to see if you can get it right. Because who knows? You've got you've got the best family in the world to fall back on. I always I always you know was touched when when writing this and being reminded that you know that Necro learned the knuckleball from his father, who was a semi professional pitcher and a coal miner. Uh, also named Phil Necro, you know, it, it really was the family business. And, and uh, uh, Joe, uh, his brother, younger brother by five years, uh, had a, a pretty good uh, career as well. Took a little bit longer to develop into uh, uh, anything close to a star, but had some excellent years for the, for the Astros and, and always seemed to give the Dodgers problems, if I remember. And they got to be teammates uh, a couple times, first in Atlanta and then uh, with the Yankees. I was reminded that there's a story about Joe uh, or you know about when you when you when you hear about Phil winning his 300th game, Joe had just joined the Yankees, and Billy Martin sent him out for the ninth inning to warm Phil uh, to warm Phil up. This is the last day of the 1984 season, I think it is. You know, just kind of a, it must have been a, a very touching scene for the two of them to be there. And I guess uh, uh, Phil Senior was was in intensive care. And that was the one reason why Phil decided he would make the start because the Yankees had been eliminated the day before. And uh, uh, I guess his father got out of intensive care that day. So a really cool story. Yeah. And when you hear stories like that, you sometimes feel almost wistful because baseball has become kind of a more professional operation in a way. So you don't have those same kinds of fun stories like, you know, Gates Brown running with hot dogs in his shirt. <laughs> you, you mentioned Billy Martin. When he was, I forget who he was managing for at the time. When the team went in the slump, they actually made the lineup by drawing names out of hats. Yeah, I think it was with the Yankees uh, because I remember I think Chris Chambliss hit like eighth or something in the lineup and hit a home run, and and Billy Martin was really proud of that. Huh. But now, I mean, everything's so. I guess it's we have we have more corporate baseball now. 
Yeah, I it's yeah. So it was. I I just googled this while you were talking. Nineteen seventy seven, April twenty first, nineteen seventy seven. It was uh, Martin pulling uh, names out of a hat for his lineup, and the Yankees won that game eight to six. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty solid. I wonder, looking back, was 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 the Gates Brown incident the year that uh, or the year or two that that Martin was managing the Tigers, um, or was that uh, or was that the Mayo, the Mayo Smith era? I don't know how Billy Martin would have reacted to a player having hot dogs come out of his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a different time and, and uh, maybe a, a, a little bit lighter. But oh, the other thing about Billy Martin in that game is for the ninth inning, while well, he sends Necro out to the ma- uh, Joe Necro out to the mound to talk to his brother and then to, and then to catch him in warmups, he sends like five relievers to the bullpen for what's at this point, I think, an eight nothing game. And uh, just just messing with Phil, and it was like kind of a jerk, a, a bit of a jerk move. But then you know, Billy Martin was a bit of a jerk. But at the same time, you know, it's it, it's a good story. And the fact that 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 Phil Negro did not throw the knuckleball at all until the final batter of the game and the final two pitches of the game uh, to strike out his his former teammate Jeff Burrows, I thought was a was a very cool story. Uh, Joe Posnanski kind of recreated that in. Uh, uh, his series at the Athletic, but I'd heard it before, and it was interesting to go back and relive. So, Dan, let's let's talk about these other guys that we've lost this year. Do any any besides Seaver in the in in the weird White Sox uniform uh, and Joe Morgan in the weird A's uniform? <laughs> any of them particularly stimulate some memories for you? Well, Joe Morgan does in a way simply because he was such a presence post baseball. More really, I think, than any of the of the other Hall of Famers we lost this year. Because, you know, a very famous broadcaster with, with John Miller, he was with ESPN for a long time. And even though, yeah, I mean, we kind of teased him about sabermetric stuff. I mean, it always felt good to have, you know, a guy with a connection to, to the 70s game, like, always there. And it, it seems just weird kind of without him still. Yeah, he was, you know, he was sort of, in some ways, he was kind of the sabermetric ideal for a ball player in terms of his ability to to get on base, to make high percentage base running decisions. At his best, he was an excellent fielder, and he was probably the most complete player in the game. And we can measure that stuff by wins above replacement, yet he was so completely disdainful uh, of the concept of advanced statistics, and it made him into a caricature, and it was kind of sad. And I feel like, you know, there there were times when he could have been much more adult about it. And, and, and you're one of the top broadcasters in the country now. You're a Hall of Famer. You're on the Hall of Fame board of directors. Why do you insist on punching down? Nobody's nobody's coming to knock you off your perch. But, uh, you know, that was uh, that was unfortunate. And, and I know I, I think I, I think I did uh, did a bit about Morgan and, and, and that angle and uh, uh, when he passed away a few months ago. But, the, you know, speaking of weird uniforms, the more the Morgan I remember best or worst is, is the Giants uniform because he hit that big three run home run on, uh, off Terry Forster on the final day of the 1982 season, which which gave the Braves that NL West title. Uh, that was the, just the second time Negro got to the playoffs. But uh, yeah, Morgan in the uh, uh, the the black and orange, living on in my nightmares with with that with that dagger of a home run, strange strange time. And then and then with the Phillies the next year, when the the Wheeze kids, when the Phillies went to the World Series, and they had Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez from the old Big Red Machine, and they were all well well over forty at the time. Uh, I think going uh going to Bob Gibson for a minute. Uh, that's. He was he was a pitcher. I never got to see pitch, unfortunately. I really would have liked to. But he was always the pitcher that 
when I was a kid, people would talk about from the previous generation more than Seaver, more than Carlton. It was right. Bob Gibson that was almost the the platonic ideal of a of a classic power picture who will mow you down without thinking twice. Yeah, I I I too. I mean, Gibson Gibson retired just before my just before I started watching baseball. So I, so all I've got are the legends, and the legends are long, you know, and they're furthered by. Uh, the likes of Tim McCarver as a broadcaster and, and, and Joe Torrey as a manager. Um, Gibson was, again, the way these guys cross paths, Gibson was, was Torrey's pitching coach in Atlanta. And they didn't really handle Phil Necro in the way that Phil Necro wanted to be handled. They started taking Necro, you know, who could complete about half his starts. They started pulling him, you know, after six innings or whatever, because they felt like he was faltering late in games. And as the Braves moved to become a more competitive team, they probably had a point. You look at the stats and, you know, the third time through the order or the sixth, seventh, eighth innings or seventh, eighth, ninth innings. Yeah, his numbers, there are years when his numbers kind of take a dip as, as, as you might expect. But boy, they didn't, they did not exactly mesh. And I guess you could understand Gibson being the power pitcher that he was and Necro doing something that was utterly foreign uh, to Gibson. but And Torrey just hated catching the knuckleball. And the turning point in Negro's career was when the Braves traded for Barb, for Bob Euchre because Torrey just didn't want any part of catching it. But yeah, Gibson, ultimate competitor. I think some of some of the some of the uh, intimidation stuff is is more legend than fact when you look at the fact that you know he did not hit all that many batters. <laughs> so he's always held up as like, yeah, he you know he just would you, you get the impression he would have drilled everybody. And I think to some extent he kind of resented you know even though he thrived with with the you know the reputation for being intimidating and 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 was so no nonsense on the field that he wouldn't even talk to opposing players off the field he kind of resented that that he'd sort of been built up as this ogre and you know after after his career and i think there's you know there's there's layers to that 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 have a lot to do with you know race and our perception of it and and especially the way you know he was reported on the day by by an all-white media but very fascinating character uh and certainly one that i wish i'd gotten to see on a regular basis and thankfully, he was also he was a, you know, a good enough picture that he didn't have any trouble getting in the Hall of Fame. So any of of people who were kind of backwards in that way weren't able to keep him out the same way when we talk about Dick Allen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Gibson's credentials were unquestionable. He had no no gaps in his resume. You know, he had the 3000 strikeouts. He didn't have 300 wins, but he had the, the World Series rings and he had the Cy Young Award. And, and yeah, just as, as complete a resume as you could want. When I project pictures, usually what, what happens once or twice a year is that some picture gets a top comp of Bob Gibson. And then I have to explain to people that it's not that Bob Gibson. It's the middle reliever from the 80s. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so my Zips database now has, you know, for names, there's Bob Gibson and, a, and the, the Brewers reliever is now named not that Bob Gibson. Because there's only one. I think I, I think I remember seeing you tweet about that once. I don't know. I feel like they should retire names like jerseys too. Yeah, kind of well, like to do the Screen Actors Guild. I mean, you can only have one Bob Gibson. I mean, it, well, there's, there was also Walpole Joe, Joe Morgan, the the Red Sox manager. And every time I write about Joe Morgan, I have to go into the player linker and and dig out the Joe Morgan, you know, the right Joe Morgan. Just the same way I have to dig out the right Bob Gibson. It's uh, it's a headache. <laughs> yeah, look, see, it's one I don't have because there's one Dan Zaborski, but uh, right. I remember when the Red Sox hired Joe Morgan. I was listening to the the, the nascent ESPN at the time, and I thought that they hired that Joe Morgan because I didn't know there was another Joe Morgan. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I guess I probably did a double take at that at that point too. But uh, um, I was living in I was living in New England at the time when that Joe Morgan was was, was managing the Red Sox, and I guess they had had some success under him for a while. But uh, like everything with the Red Sox and managers, it eventually went sour. Now, in some ways, I I think Tom Seaver might be the hardest loss to take, simply because he was the youngest, I believe, of the Hall of Famers who passed away. His last years were taken away from him by dementia. Uh, and COVID yeah. complications, and that just makes everything just seem so much worse in a way. Yeah, you know, and, and definitely feel feel the loss of Tom Seaver here in New York because he was such an icon, and you know, people have such fond memories of 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 what he meant to the Mets. You know, not only with winning the World Series, but just the utter shock and horror. You know that uh, with regards to his being traded away in 1977, and just the way the way that all played out, I think was uh, is the, those wounds are still there. But uh, yeah, you know he was not just a not just a player; he was an icon, and and you know a, a, a pretty fascinating character. I remember Emma, my wife Emma Spann, when she was at Sports on Earth, she edited a piece by Pat Jordan, the former pitcher who uh, caught up with Tom Seaver working in his vineyard. And the two of them were, were old friends. And uh, it was a really touching piece. But even then, I think Seaver was having some health problems that were related to Lyme disease, if I'm remembering correctly. And it was, it, you know, it, 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 it very much was, was one of those like lion in winter profiles. And I thought of it and, uh, you know, when, when um, the Mets, you know, were planning their 50th year, you know, 50th anniversary celebration of, of uh, uh, that, that 69 championship team and, and the Seaver family announced that Tom would not be partaking in, in it because, uh, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd reached that stage where public appearances just weren't possible for him and, and, you know, just felt like that was a missed opportunity for the Mets to, to honor him uh, before he reached that point. Not that they didn't honor him with the retirement, but, you know, build the guy a statue while he's still, you know, while, while he's still uh, around to appreciate it, you know. And then, of course, there's Whitey Ford, who, you know, a New Yorker of, of, of a previous generation. And I know that we're both well too <laughs> young to, to, to have seen him, but, uh, um, you know, he towers over the legend of the Yankees. Uh, and especially those those World Series teams, and as uh, as as Mickey Mantle's sidekick, and uh, uh, a, f- a fascinating life unto itself. What What's amazing about those uh, those those fifties Yankees teams is, I mean, people who don't like know the rosters by heart don't know this, but I mean, Whitey Ford, the way he stood out, I mean, it was not a rotation that was packed with you know near Hall of Fame talent. They had a lot of guys come in and out that were good for a year or two, and and mm-hmm. Ford was like the one constant in the fifties. Yeah, there. You know, I in some ways, I think I think there's maybe a comparison to be made with the between the um, uh, those Yankees and the 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 mid nineties Indians, that those powerhouse lineups, because those teams would just beat you into submission, and they had good enough pitching to to withstand most things but you know they were those guys were basically there to you know to stick around while six runs were being six or seven runs were being scored on their behalf um obviously the the indians didn't have quite the same success as the yankees but to me that's the analog you just you weren't getting a lot of cy young candidates on on the uh on either of those teams and and uh although whitey ford did win a cy young you're right the rest of that rotation you know it was uh in some ways, it was it was kind of predated the rotation, the notion of a rotation, especially when Casey Stengel was there, because Casey did not really use a set rotation and kind of move pitchers around in a way that's that's anathema today. One of the weird, I guess, I guess, post notes about Whitey Ford 
is because of the Simpsons episode that had, you know, a, a <laughs> fake Whitey Ford. I think of pretzels as Whitey Whackers. Oh, jeez. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, you can call them Whitey Whackers. But it, it's funny because I, I never got to see him play. And it, it was before, you know, every game was recorded on video and, and stored forever. So, like, one of my strongest memories of, of Whitey Ford is is a cartoon version of him getting pelted by pretzels. I mean, I think if, I, if I've used the phrase, this is a dark day for baseball <laughs> once, I've used it a thousand times. You yeah, know? between <laughs> that and, and here come the pretzels. Here come the pretzels. <laughs> oh. And then there's Lou Brock, the one guy we haven't gotten to and, and one that I have uh, a lot of affection for even though I didn't get to see very much of his career, looking back, learning about Brock uh, post-career, I know that, that uh, he gets kind of picked on. He doesn't do very well by War and Jaws, but he was he was Mr. Excitement because of his base running. Um, and he had some spectacular World Series performances in 64, 67, and 68, as did Gibson, of course. And he got to 3,000 hits and at one point held both the single season and career stolen base records. But the thing I remember learning about Brock was the extent to which he studied pitchers. I guess he got a hold of a Super 8 camera. This is as early as 1964, and it was well ahead of, you know, the video generation. And he was he was taking home movies and uh, studying pitchers' pickoff moves. And I think he got thrown out by Don Drysdale, who said, keep me the F out of your movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I always felt bad for poor Ernie Brolio, because at the time, if you look at the time of the trade, the, the very famous trade, I mean, people yeah. obviously, and with the benefit of hindsight, cite that as one of the most lopsided trades ever. But at the time, it wasn't really so. Berlio, I mean, he was he was struggling, but he also had a better track record. Uh, so it's interesting because a lot of these trades of of Hall of Famers, I mean, we know like at the time that they're that they're just terrible trades, right? But that one, I mean, Berlio washed out. He just he died, I think, a year or two ago, also. So it kind of closes the book on the trade. Yeah, yeah, July two thousand nineteen. You're right. If we, it's funny. If we were to, if we were to, to break down that trade, I'm looking right now at his at his page, and he was far outperforming his peripherals. They had regression written all over it, Dan. I'm glad we weren't <laughs> there to ruin that for everyone. Because I yeah. know, because I know, Dan's the one who sometimes ruins all the romance. Yeah, but. Sometimes I don't want to be that guy. It's like, but of course people will tell me, I mean, my, my mom will say this to me like, Dan, do you always have to be you? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, the, the, the antidote to that, I think is to try to learn to see other positions. And, and the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say about Brock, and this is a revelation. I've sort of been talking about this kind of uh, here and there without ever really, without ever really knuckling down and, and writing the piece. But the mantra that I've been using for the last couple of years is this is time to start giving a about batting average again because batting average is entertainment value and baseball right now i think is not necessarily delivering uh, on the entertainment value in the way it should and and you know in the stat head community we've done a lot to kind of beat down the notion that batting average has any importance whatsoever compared to on-base percentage and slugging percentage but there's a reason reason people like the each rose and people like the dj lemayhews and people like the lou brocks and the tony gwynn's uh, even when you know their their WAR or or their OPS plus says that they're not the equal of of the big sluggers, and and I think that's something that uh, again I I owe I owe our readers a piece because I want to kind of articulate that particularly as we, before we get into next season. 
but it's it's one of those things that's kind of taught me to to especially watching watching LeMahieu here in New York and before that watching Ichiro that's kind of crystallized my thinking about what this uh uh, this divide and 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 how we can do a better job of maybe being less predictably rote stat heads when it comes to breaking down some of these things. I think long term, I think obviously this is probably something we're going to be discussing in a future segment, but I, I do think it's something that baseball should consider addressing through rules. Because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you incentivize the fun things and make the fun things the good things, that seems to be a virtuous cycle to me. Right. Well, it's all food for thought for another day, I think, and uh, at the danger of uh, running too far over our allotted time here. You know, I think that this just goes to show that these Hall of Famers that we've uh, lost this year are guys who cast a long shadow across baseball and the elements of their game that, that we can still talk about. And I imagine we'll still be talking about these guys, uh, you know, 10, 20 years from now, and, and others will look back upon them as well. For Fangraphs Audio and Dan Zimborski, I'm Jay Jaffe. Happy New Year to you listeners. We'll see you in 2021. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Derek Gould, who covers the St. Louis Cardinals for the Post-Dispatch. Derek, it is the holiday season. We are talking on Tuesday, so I hope you had a good Christmas. I did. It was very, very nice, uh, different than usual in the fact that it was uh, lacking because you didn't get a chance to see anybody outside the uh, the family or at least be, you know, in the same home as uh, as people. So a lot of gift opening on Zoom, a lot of uh, a lot of working with uh, grandma and grandpa and grandparents on how to work Zoom. So it was uh, yeah, a little different, but uh, but it was a nice chance to be at home with family at least. Uh, you know, this has been a an extended stretch for everybody. So all all you kind of hope for is that you you have a healthy holiday season. But it was also uh, enjoyable as uh, as we saw kind of the gifts reflect the the time that we're spending together. So there was you know games and movies and things that we could share as opposed to uh, the gifts that are kind of and and comfy socks. That was a big gift, comfy socks because apparently we're wearing more socks and need more comfy socks um, to be around the house. So. Um, I thought that was interesting that the gifts kind of took on a, a more communal feel um, that everybody could share in. Yes, comfy socks are a very underrated Christmas present. They, they're not very flashy, but they feel very good on your feet. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. And slippers. I got slippers, so but I had to buy them myself, so they weren't much of a gift. But they were a gift to me, a nice luxury. I got slippers as well. Uh, my wife got them for me because uh, I live in the Northeast. And, <laughs> and uh, when there's not snow on the ground, I will go out and get the morning newspaper. Yes, I still get a print newspaper delivered. Thank you. Uh, every morning, the Boston Globe. And I will normally go out on bare feet and she thinks I'm crazy. So I now slip on slippers. And I'm sure everybody listening to this is thinking, for God's sakes, when are they going to start talking about baseball? Well, your your slippers might be baseball slippers, right? No, they are not. Oh. Nor are they bunny slippers, which is which is actually unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's talk baseball. The deadline for the descendant Hall of Fame ballots is in a few days from when we're speaking. Um, have you fi- you have been filling one out for how many years now, Derek? Ooh, that's a great question. Golly. A few decades, right? No. <laughs> no, no, no. This is your first year, right? Filling yes. it out? Yeah, congratulations. I, I could do the math off the top of my head. The first vote that I cast 
for the Hall of Fame, and I did this because I'm a romantic with it, um, and I was so eager to do it, and I probably did it the day that the ballot arrived. The first check mark I put was Ken Griffey Jr. Um, nice. So hit the year that he was um, eligible, which would be 2015 um, into 2016, I believe, right? Yeah, 2016 was when he was inducted. So since 2015, I've had a ballot. Right. So not a matter of decades filling a ballot, I guess. Maybe I'm thinking, um, you know, since you've been in the BBWAA, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to aid you. It just feels like I've been around for decades because I write so much. That's that's what I'm thinking, is that I I, I, I overpopulate the uh, the website with content. So people just assume that it must have been 20 plus years that I've been doing this. That is, that is not a bad thing. I understand that you you don't like to do your ballot reveal before you know you have a chance to write about it, which you have not done. Right. That said, would I be off base to think that you probably put a check mark next to Scott Rowland's name? Uh, the first check mark I did this year. Yes. Uh, um, I mean, I voted for him in the past, and I try to remain consistent with my ballot. Um, but you know, I like I said, I have a little romance when I you know I try. I, I mean, I take it very seriously, obviously, probably, you know, just chewing over it, chewing over it, researching it, reading Jay's work, um, which has been just so indispensable um, through the years. I've, I've learned a lot, um, been challenged a lot. Um, I dig into things on my own, even like earlier before you, you, you know, before we started recording, I was looking up different things for relievers, like uh, when probability added during the expansion era and how, how to how to better understand and better consider uh, relievers who don't say have like a Billy Wagner, who don't exactly have the, uh, the bells and whistles of all the saves that say a Hoffman does, or, you know, just those gaudy, crazy, amazing Cooperstown ready stats that Mariano Rivera had, because at some point in time, having a better handle on how to look at relievers is going to be important. So I was fiddling around with, uh, when probability added in different stats and trying to do it through the years to compare, um, you know, not just current players, but to, you know, to get a sense of where that would put them in baseball history. So I, I do all that, but, um, but, you know, every so often um, I like to add the touch of nostalgia or the touch of romance to, to voting on the ballot. So last year, first check was Larry Walker. Um, I actually drove to Coors field and mailed my ballot from the post box nearest Coors field last year. I thought that was the right thing to do. You know, it was Larry Walker's last year on the ballot, and it was beyond time for him to be inducted. And so I did that. Um, every previous year, I have actually gone to the post box nearest the house I grew up in, um, the, the same post box where, as a kid, I would mail off to get baseball cards signed or I would mail off subscriptions to Baseball America or to Baseball Weekly, um, that same mailbox where I would mail things to you know, a way to get some kind of connection to baseball. It's the same place where, for example, I mailed off a check to get a hat from a Moscow baseball team, um, which I still have. But uh, as a kid who grew up in the time zone, baseball forgot. Um, I, I liked the symmetry of of taking my Hall of Fame ballot and mailing it from that same place. This year I did not. This year I, w I won't get a chance to do that. Yeah, you are still a true baseball romantic. I think I, that, that I, is safe to say. That's a nice compliment. I, I'll take that as a compliment. Right. So we shouldn't talk really too much about process or this year's ballot. We can talk about it. I don't mind talking about the process at all. And if that reveals 
who I voted for, that's fine. I just feel like I owe it to the paper to to offer my uh, my complete reveal to them first. I mean, and and some of them, to be honest, you know, are on a on a razor's edge for me. So I'm happy to talk about process. I think it's important. Sure. Well, let's let me hit you with one process question. How do you go about balancing uh, rate stats and counting stats? It's a great question um, because. You know, one of the things that I ran into this year was, you know, the notion of, of a guy who had great compiling stats. Um, you know, I, I Brayu leaps to mind, right? He, he has good compiling stats, but, you know, where during his career was he considered one of the 10 best hitters in the league? Was he considered one of the 20 best in, in baseball? You know, where, where, were the, where were the votes for him um, and how do those rates look? Um, I I don't have like a 60-40 kind of breakdown that I do 60 compiling and 40 rate. Um, I'm more try to come up with an alchemy of sorts, to be honest, where I appreciate the longevity that it takes to build a long resume. You know, like Omar Vizquel had a long career and built a bunch of stats because of the length of his career. I, I respect the notion that longevity matters, but I don't discount guys who had, you know, who burned bright for 11, 12 years and their rates are well above, but they don't quite yet have some of the magic counting stats. I, I think that is um, a, a leap I wanted to make as I considered what it would take to be a, a voter and what I would go into it was that I didn't want to get hung up on the on the numbers. And you know what I'll tell you one of the one of the reasons I, I thought about that and one of the reasons why I learned that and it goes back to, you know, 1993, right? I'm a I'm a kid in Colorado and the Rockies arrive, Major League Baseball arrives finally um, and get to go to see games and um, you know one of the things that the Rockies did was they signed a guy by the name of Dale Murphy who has 398 career homers. He did not hit a homer for the Rockies, but came there with the chance to hit two to get to 400, that magic 400. And it always kind of stuck with me. Like, here, here's a guy who you could say was the best player in the game, has the MVPs to prove it, right? Has the gold gloves, silver sluggers, just a, a, a tremendous resume, um, but not yet in the Hall of Fame. And I was like, well, is it, is it possible that because he doesn't have 400? I mean, what what's 400 compared to 398? Two? Two swing? I mean, is that possible, you know, that that's what's holding him on? I, I always kind of, you know, turn back to that and go, yeah, that, that, that the rate should tell us a little bit more about, like, the finality of the number. And while 3,000 hits and 400 home runs, maybe 400 home runs doesn't have the same significance today that it does, but you know, 500 stolen bases, you know, 3,000 uh, strikeouts or 250 wins. These numbers still resonate. You can still put value in them, but don't ignore the guys who fell short but have tremendous rates. And so I can't, I can't exactly say that it's 50-50 or 60-40 or how I look at it, but I definitely look at, at how they intertwine um, before I vote for a guy. And I try to look for guys who have both. Well, Al Kaline went into the Hall of Fame. He breezed in with 399. So maybe that magic number is not actually 400, yeah. you know, but 399. <laughs> Good call. I just I just was trying to think of like the example that echoed in my ear as a kid. 
No, of course. So with the exception of Albert Pujols, who will certainly be a first ballot Hall of Famer, mm-hmm. who is the best former St. Louis Cardinal not in the Hall of Fame? Well, is Yadier Molina a former St. Louis Cardinal because he's a free agent? That's a very good question. Would he be the guy? Yeah, I mean, he'd be my answer, yeah. And he would be, I mean, I know that you probably want me to say Scott Rowland, but I would think that if Yadier Molina is considered today a former Cardinal, he's the best second to Albert Pujols to not be in the Hall of Fame. And then Scott Rowland is a close third. Um, And then Jim Edmonds is in the conversation. What about Mr. Ken Boyer? So Ken Boyer is a great question, and I'm glad you brought him up. You know, a, a guy who compares well to his contemporaries, cont- compares well to Ron Santo, who is in the Hall of Fame, is a tremendously gifted defensive third baseman by all accounts. And I, I know that my colleague Rick Hummel has really championed him as a Hall of Famer. His number is retired here um, by the Cardinals. Um, I am of the opinion that the third base because of the nature of the position, is woefully misunderstood and therefore underrepresented in the Hall. There are more managers in the Hall of Fame than there are third basemen. And I have a hard time computing that because of the tremendous amount of two-way talents that it takes to play third base, right? Um, it's It's a position on the left side of the infield where... A lot of offense is expected, but also superb defense. And you see guys spend time there at third, but they don't, you know, they migrate elsewhere. They get out to the outfield. They go to first base, um, you know, but it's a, it's a position that demands a lot on both sides of the ball. And because of that, you know, you don't have the guys who are, you know, there are shortstops who get into the Hall of Fame because they are, they are sublimely talented defenders, right? But you're not allowed to just be that at third base. You also have to produce. And there are you know guys at first base who just get into the Hall of Fame because they're monstrous power guys. Well, you don't really have that at third base. I mean, you have some guys at third base that stand out, the very elite who stand out there. But they also had to be gifted defensively. And so I, I think that like Boyer is part of that group. And Scott Rowland is part of that group of guys at third base where if there was a better appreciation for the discipline required to be an elite third baseman, they would get a red carpet ride into Cooperstown. It's just because that base, that position is underrepresented and in some ways wrestled with, like like we were talking about with, or I was talking about earlier with, with relief pitchers, that it needs to be better understood. I, you know, I think I was thinking more along the lines of the modern Cardinals when you asked that question. Um, but as I kind of sort through it, I still think I think Boyer's in that conversation, you know, and should be honored in the same way like like a Joe Gordon was right with the Yankees, the second baseman who years after his career through a modern lens, it took on a, a greater gravity. And I, I think Boyer deserves that kind of look. And given that the Hall of Fame is more than just pure stats to, to you and, and me. Uh, what about Kurt Flood? So Kurt Flood changed baseball history. Now, there's a place for him in the in the story of baseball, a very prominent place in the story of his, uh, of baseball. And the Hall of Fame makes it very clear that it is also a museum. That's not to detract from Kurt Flood's career. He was an exceptional defensive center fielder by all accounts, gold glove winner. Um, you know, Bob Gibson spoke so highly 
of him whenever he had a chance, whenever we would talk to the late Bob Gibson and, and Flood came up, he would just extol how great a player he was. So, you know, he has the statistical chops for consideration. I wonder if there's a more vaulted place for him, you know, and I, I, I get that maybe that comes with a plaque there or comes with induction in the Hall of Fame, but there's got to be some sort of recognition for beyond his career that he just altered the shape of baseball he altered the 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 arc of the game um and and did so with what in politics we would call a profile and courage right um you know that that's what he did and so what uh, is that an honor that carries his name like the union is uh, is doing uh I, I think something along those lines or is there a category and maybe we see this developing a little bit, right? Marvin Miller would have gone in. There is, it's long overdue for Buck O'Neill to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, maybe there's some kind of category that Cooperstown could embrace um, that's somewhat along the lines of ambassador, builder, um, or uh, what would be iconoclast? Is that a good word for it? Um, where, you know, you're, they're honored in that way. I could definitely go with that. Let's circle back. Is that there. the right word? Did I pick a good word? I don't know if it's the word that I would use, but but we we can go with it. A legacy, maybe? Maybe legacy is better? Yeah, like, legacy is, is actually a great word. And that uh, is a great segue into, into going back to Molina. Molina is third in games played behind Musial and Brock in Cardinals mm-hmm. franchise history. What role does legacy play? What role will it play in the team's decision whether or not they bring him back? A lot, a lot. It's a driving factor. Um, it's something that ownership has uh, has identified. It's something that ownership has talked about for nine plus years here about legacy players and the preference to keep them when possible. It's the it's the lesson that carries over from their attempts to try to sign Albert Pujols and what they learned when they did not do that. Um, both good and bad, um, both for the future of the franchise, but also for lacking that uh, signature cardinal for this era who then became Yadier Molina. Um, yeah, it's absolutely a part of it. It was a part of his last contract. They're realizing that they're having to, in their words, bake it into this contract too um, because it also influences what he thinks he should get from the Cardinals because they know him best, right? So they should trust him the most. Right, and Colton Wong is falls short of a legacy player, yet he has been in the organization for, I believe, 10 years now. Yep. And he's been a very good player. He's got a few gold gloves or you know, however you want to value you know, that award. And he's not a bad hitter, yet he was just let go, which, which surprised me. Did not surprise me because of the circumstances in which the, the current decisions are being made. You know, you, you look at that $12.5 million dollar option with a $1 million buyout. And in another economy, um, another circumstance, it's a no-brainer for them because Colton is everything that they have wanted from players. Um, You know, he's a player they drafted. He's a player they developed. He's a player who had to go back to the minors to get back to the majors. He's a player who wanted playing time to prove the player he was, got it, then really blossomed. He's a guy who went out to prove that he was the best defensive second baseman in the majors and has won the Fielding Bible Award the past three years and the Gold Glove the past two, um, so he you know every and he signed an extension, a rather team friendly extension, 
that was a mutual commitment to uh, that he recognized at the time. I remember going to the press conference. He recognized at the time that this was a bet on him that the Cardinals were making, that he would reach their expectations and his own expectations of who he could be. It was it was not a payment for past production. It was a bet on his future production. In many ways, he uh, personifies what the Cardinals value. Um, however, in this market, they thought that they could probably get more bang for the buck at a lower price um, because of the number of second baseman or fielders or shortstops that would be available and because they have a guy who is still a zero to three in Tommy Edmond who can take over that position. Right. So there are some other options, but you still are talking about money being part of the part of the story. Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright, similar things. Given the state of the, the NL Central, the Cardinals would likely be strong favorites if they spent this winter. The DeWitt family, to my knowledge, they are the wealthiest owners in the division. They can spend money. You know, mm-hmm. why in this climate are they not seemingly not willing to do so? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that confounds Cardinal fans. Their explanation is that they, you know, had a zero net on one of their most important revenue streams, which was ticket sales. Um, they also did not really get the money returned on on the on the rights fees, right? Which are not they're they're good. Um, but they're not like Chicago good, right? Or, or, or Atlanta good because of the market size. That's just a, that's a measure of population and cable boxes as much as anything and not, not reflective, say, of the ratings um, that they have. They also have part, part ownership in that team. Um, they have payments due on the ballpark. Um, they also have a lot of commitments for the coming year. When you think about what they have, the final guaranteed years of Carpenter's career, the final guaranteed year of Fowler's contract, um, they have the final year of Andrew Miller's contract. They're going to have about $60 million melt off the payroll at the end of the year, but that's $60 million that they have committed through this year. Um, that was something that they did a few years ago when they, in one in a few weeks of spring training, they guaranteed something like $230 million to players um, through extensions. And they obviously, you know, you, they, they didn't factor in the possibility of a global pandemic and, and having zero fans um, for an entire season or zero ticket sales, I should say, for an entire season. And so they see some kind of correction that is needed um, and that has them holding off. I think there's also a real sense that as we're talking here, it's coming up on the new year. And they, like other teams, don't yet know how long the season is going to be. They, like other teams, don't yet know if there's going to be a DH in the NL. They, like other teams, haven't really seen a move in the marketplace where they're most interested. Um, so, you know, it is kind of playing out like they set forth in December that, that they needed patience to figure this out. They, they wanted to come up with some kind of payroll plan. They expect it to be scaled back um, from this previous year. But ownership has said to the front office, and when I've asked, you know, Bill DeWitt, uh, Chairman Bill DeWitt Jr., you know, what his view is, that they, they expect to have the payroll go back, but they have not told the front office that they can't spend if an opportunity presents itself that they think um, is, is too good to pass up. Um, that means that they're shopping for a value play, not a headline play, but we'll see how that plays out. They think they'll have more answers after the new year. 
and that I think the phrase that Mosaic said was the January is the new December. Um, I think that's dangerous because pretty rapidly February can become the new December if if you know if you don't have those answers. But they're they're clearly waiting on some direction for what the season might look like, and then they can adjust accordingly. They also have left open the possibility that they spend along the way um, once it's clear that fans can come in. That probably won't satisfy the 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 ache, the hunger for some kind of move to excite the winner. Um, but that is something that they're they're putting into their plans is that they spend as they go, um, and that then they're able to count on the money coming off next year to then give them a a wider berth as to what to do in next year's free agent market. Yeah, a few more questions, Derek. Let's talk a little about this team's identity, uh, specifically yeah. on offense. The Cardinals were last in Major League Baseball in home runs this past mm-hmm. year. They were fourth from the bottom in stolen bases. Uh, no disrespect meant to the Paul DeYoungs and uh, Harrison Baders of the world, but is this team right now basically Paul Goldschmidt and seven other guys? Yes. Oh, so did you want me to elaborate on that? <laughs> well, it's probably a 30 30 minute answer to fully elaborate, but what is your <laughs> what what is your short answer of the actual offensive identity of this team? It's a drift and not really supportive of what they need. I mean, if they just had an average offense, they would be a remarkable team because of how good their pitching has been. They have left wins and they might even have left a pennant on the table in the past 2 years because of their lack of offense. Um, you think about going into now, look, the Washington Nationals were a remarkable team. They, they were a pitching juggernaut when the Cardinals faced them in the NLCS, and you saw what they did against arguably the best offense in baseball in the Astros and were able to subdue them and eventually win in seven games. You know, the Cardinals, however, were historically awful in that NLCS, and they bowed out quickly as a result. Um, they put up some kind of resistance had they, you know, adjusted quicker to how the Nationals had basically, uh, let's say, unplugged their offense with scouting and with execution. Um, you know, maybe that series goes different. Maybe it has the same result, but they're not historically bad offensively in it. Um, this has been two years of this search. Um, it also has been two years with hitting coach Jeff Elbert. Um, and I think there is a real distinct question as to what their identity is. They, they aren't getting the return on the strikeouts, right? They're, they're the only team, or I guess the Marlins and them are the only teams in baseball over the last what, two years to have 600-plus strikeouts from their outfield. And let me, I have this number right here, um, to have 600-plus strikeouts and what was it? fewer than a hundred home runs from their outfielders. I mean, it's just, they're just not getting the, the bang for the, for the, for the, uh, for the eagerness, you know, the, the aggressive you, you know, the willingness to strike out. I mean, look, they're the only national league team in 2019 and 2020. If you fuse those two seasons together, they're the only national league team. And this is, this is the answer to your question about Paul Goldschmidt, where the number three hitter has more walks, 114 than RBIs, 111. That tells you what the situation is with Paul Goldschmidt. You know, in 2019, it was absurd how few opportunities he had to hit with runners on base, let alone runners in scoring position. And then, you know, they, they there's a lot of criticism here for them letting 
um, Marcelo Zuna go? Well, Marcelo Zuna had more at-bats in the cleanup spot than anybody in 2018 and 2019, anybody in the majors, and it wasn't even close. And yet there were 30 hitters who had better rate stats than him of that group. He was subpar. He was below average at cleanup. And the Cardinals have had that problem. They have, you know, their OPS um, in 2019, 2020 from the leadoff spot was 29th in baseball. Their their on-base percentage from the leadoff spot in those two seasons is sixth lowest. I mean, it's 319. That, that's not any way to ignite an offense, and that's not any way to put up crooked numbers. And that's where they're, they're – I mean, I, I got – numbers for days on this stuff and we could also talk about how any kind of change to the offense is going to have to start with the outfield and it can't just be dylan carlson who is a supremely gifted prospect high ceiling prospect seriously one of the most poised and polished young hitters i've seen in a long time um, in this organization stress in this organization but you know he can't do it on his own but he's got to be a part of it because the outfield has just been absent from any sort of threat. And you you can tell by their actions that the Cardinals know this because for parts of last year, they were the only team in baseball that hit their outfielders seven, eight, and nine. Wow. And Randy Rosarina could have been one of those outfielders. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of fans around the country have already prejudged that trade. You know, looking into your crystal ball, who do you think will end up getting the best of this deal? Ah, that's a great question. I mean, you you might be really well suited to answer the question. Isn't the isn't the answer always if you get a the team that gets the starter, right? Who is actually like a number two or number three starter? Isn't that always the answer? I don't know if it is always the answer. I'm sure it is frequently the answer, but of course, high school pitchers are very hard to predict, as you they know. Are. But Liberator yeah, 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 yeah. has a chance to be Adam Wainwright. A left-handed Adam Wainwright, you know, with mm-hmm. the great curveball. With more velocity. And more velocity. So we probably don't need to talk too much about, about that trade, though, because I know that you've done it a lot on, no, uh, it's okay. on your podcast. I'm happy to do I think that in the I think the short term is going to favor the Rays, and I think short term includes 2021. Um, I think the short term, which is really, if you're a contending team, you know, like the Cardinals, where you're expected to, to win every year, um, short term stands out a little bit more. I think, you know, five, six, seven, eight years from now, when we look back, it's going to be the Libertor trade. But that doesn't excuse the fact that the Rays are going to do better in the short term. Fair enough. So one last question, Derek. Let's mm-hmm. uh, let's close with baseball cards. All right. I haven't collected baseball cards for several years, but I do have a good many in the closet. I, I know that you collect in terms of old St. Louis Cardinals cards, and I checked this out uh, before we got on the uh, podcast here, I think my coolest might be a 1962 Mini Minoso. Huh, that is great. His one year with the Cardinals. I also have a 1954 Red Shane Deans. Ooh, that's really good. Which has a great blurb on the back. It includes the fact that he had a nervous habit of taking his glove off between pitches <laughs> as a fielder, which I have. had you heard that? I had not. That's great. And and Red was coming off a season where he hit about 340 as well. Yeah. So yeah. He, he wasn't a great hitter. He did have that one fabulous year. And, and I happened to have, have the card from the following spring. But what, what stands out in your collection with, with old cards? So my collection, I, I, I'm more of the thrill of the 
of opening wax packs. Um, so I, I enjoy getting packs and open them and see what I get. And then if I, uh, if I can, then I'll mail cards to kids who are fans of teams or things like that. And I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm a connoisseur, um, more like, uh, I just like, I like the thrill of the opening packs. However, I do have some cherished cards. I have two cards that would be considered old. I think by that definition, one I'm looking at right now is at my desk and that's a 1970 tops card of Kurt Flood who we talked about earlier. Um, this is a card that I, it's not worth a whole lot except for I've, I always wanted to have it. Can I hit you with a trivia question? Go ahead. Do you know why I chased down that card? Um, nope. Can't guess. Cause it features him as a Phillies outfielder, something he never was. And I wanted that card and I have it here on my desk because it's a baseball card that, you know, that he refused to accept. And because of that, he, you know, free agency arrived and baseball changed. And I just thought that this, this card is a, you know, is reflective of a history that didn't happen, but instead of history that was changed. And so I, I like that card a lot. It's just, it's a 1970 tops card and it has Kurt Flood, a great, great photo of him. Um, and it says Phillies, Kurt Flood outfield. And, you know, I just, I always found it fascinating that, uh, that that card existed and I wanted to make sure that I had one. So it's here on my desk. The other one that would qualify was a gift from my wife and it's a Johnny Evers tobacco card or mini card or whatever we're supposed to call them now. And it's from 1909 and it was a gift on my birthday because Johnny Evers obviously is, uh, part of Tinker to Evers to Chance. Um, ba- baseball sad lexicon, uh, a poem that I, uh, well, butchered in <laughs> rewriting for the post dispatch that caused a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a kerfuffle here between the cards and the car- Cubs many, many years ago. So it's always kind of been a, a joke between, uh, between people here that I messed up that poem and irritated Tony La Russa. but Evers and I share a birthday. And so we were at Cooperstown for the inductions. That's the president of the BBWAA. I was representing the BBWAA there that year. And my wife got me a, a Johnny Evers card for my birthday just because of the of the shared birthday and because of the fact that we were all there together in Cooperstown. It seemed fitting and it's a, it's a, it's a cherished item. It's, it, it, it's one of my most cherished gifts. And unlike Evers and unlike Flood, you did not play in the big leagues you do, however, have a baseball card. Yeah, this this uh, this year in the Allen and Ginter set, Tops uh, gave me, you know, just the highest honor that I could think of, and they made it. They made a baseball card of me, and there's like even a relic uh, card, so I had to send in a quote unquote game used uh, shirt for them to cut up. Um, it was a it was a shirt that I wore covering a game. Um, I have photos to prove it, and uh, you know they carved that up and put it in the cards and. It's been cool. I get, I get. One of the neatest things about the honor is I get these, uh, I get these letters from all over asking me to sign the card, and you know, it's not, it's not, it's been really. That's been great um, to get old-fashioned mail where people actually like handwrite or type out, or, or even you know, some of them. It's just, it's awesome. Uh, some of them are written on note cards. Some of them are written on you know, fancy stationery. Some are just written on loose-leaf paper from kids asking for autographs to help complete their. They're uh, Allen and Ginter set, which is just, uh, I wasn't quite prepared for how cool that would be. And it's just been, it's an honor beyond belief. 
Yeah, fantastic. That was Derek Gould, who has his own baseball card. Um, <laughs> I am David Lorela, who does not have his own baseball card, not yet. And thank you for listening to Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. One more time before the end of the year, I must suggest the purchase of an ad-free membership over at Fangraphs.com. It offers blazing fast load times for all of our leaderboards and tools and pages, and it can also be easily given as a gift. We hope you have a good and safe new year, and we will talk to you next week.